passion is the key to every breakthrough you'll ever have in any part of your life, regardless of what it is. We've been talking about that. Ecclesiastes 9 and 7, I love it, seize life. Eugene Peterson's translation, the message. There it is. Don't wait for life to tap you on the shoulder because it will pass you right by if you do. You seize life. And then we've been this year teaching about how we can do that. How can you seize life? If you need passion to succeed, how can you seize life in such a way that your passion enables you to fulfill your destiny, your purpose, be everything you could be? Most people, I'll tell you a little secret, most people in life are not truly happy with where they are. It's true. Inside, they feel like they ought to be at a different place, doing something a little different. I'm trying to teach you how to get there. Hebrews 4 tells us that we can draw from resources to get there that the unsaved cannot draw from. You were never meant to operate or live life without God. You can't function without God. You can't function without food or physical nourishment. You can't function without water, and you can't live without God. Oh, you can exist, but there's a world of difference in existing and living. And I mean, when I say living, I don't mean living. I mean living in capital letters. So once you've exhausted your human resources, that's as far as you can go. And every single one of us have a ceiling, all of us. We're only so strong, only so smart, so well-connected. We only have so many gifts and talents. After that, then what? According to Hebrews, that we have a high priest who has passed into the heavens, not just a high priest, a great high priest. And it's Jesus, the Son of God, and we should hold fast our profession, our faith. For he goes on to say, we are, this high priest that we have is different from the high priest of the Old Testament era. You couldn't touch them. They'd become contaminated and couldn't do, fulfill their priestly ministrations and duties to the people of God. This one, we don't have a high priest that cannot be touched. We can touch him. He's moved with the feelings of our infirmities. He was even tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. And right there, that's a downer for a lot of people. They read that and say, oops, he, he was perfect. I know I'm not. That's the whole reason that was put in there. To tell you that even though he's the only one who never failed, he looks back at us and this is what he says next. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. Anybody need mercy once in a while? Rather than judgment? What's the opposite of mercy? It's judgment. And find grace to help in time of need. So my contention is that as believers, we have access to resources that the unsaved person does not ever have access to. A supernatural dimension. And rather that is gifts, talents, abilities, connections, the whole supernatural aspect of life, healings, miracles, even resources. You do understand God's never been broke a day in his life. God's never stood on the side of a freeway holding a sign saying, I will work for food. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. That's what the psalmist said. And as my old pastor many years ago when I was a young man used to say, he not only owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he owns all the potatoes under the hills too. 
You have to be country to know what that means. Amen. God has inexhaustible resources of every size and description imaginable available to his people. And most of us, unfortunately, never access those. In this series, I'm teaching you a foundational premise of life that acting ordinarily only produces ordinary results. If you want to tap into the extraordinary, you must yourself do something out of the usual, out of the ordinary, or act in an extraordinary way. And that moves God extraordinarily. So how do you get this high priest? How do you touch him? Thus far in this series, we've talked about Abraham touched him with an extraordinary sacrifice. Hannah touched him with an extraordinary prayer. Paul and Silas moved God to act in their behalf with extraordinary worship. And we've talked about a number of things until we've come to Nehemiah. And we're talking about Nehemiah moved God to act in his circumstance, drew from the extraordinary resources of God to step into the supernatural dimension, and he did it on the basis of one thing. He provided extraordinary leadership. And what is amazing is that he was somebody who probably, according to those who lived around him, never should have been a leader. Because as I pointed out, he was the king's wine taster, which we've already explained, simply is a fancy title for he was the king's guinea pig. If anybody put poison in the king's wine, it would kill him. And the king would say, I'm not drinking that. But he was promoted by God and stepped into the gap at a time Israel needed leadership. And because he did such an extraordinary job, the book of Nehemiah is right there sandwiched between Esther and, Joe, uh, Esther and Ezra and is one of the greatest leadership books in all of the world. Today, I want us to look at another key leadership principle that Nehemiah embraces here. Father, in the name of Jesus, I ask you to, to move us. Lord, I've repeatedly asked, and as I often do, usually do when I minister, that you would not just let us hear thoughts and ideas and the communication of these things through speech, but that rather you would change the way we think. Your word is so powerful that it can squeeze out the negative programming of life and replace it with your word that is forever settled in the, in the heavens. Angels hasten to fulfill your word, Lord. If we can replace our thoughts as failed human beings in a fallen world with the words of Almighty God, the scripture doesn't say that, that angels only fulfill the words when you speak them. It just says they fulfill your word. If we can learn to think your thoughts and speak your life, we can tap into a dimension that is extraordinary. Change the way we think and renew our thoughts and our, our, our minds. In Jesus' name we ask, and everybody shouted and said, Amen. Amen. Nehemiah 4 and 14. I read this a couple of weeks ago, but I'll read it again and point something new out in this text. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the leaders <coughs> and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and say this with me. Fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. You're a leader, and God wants to develop you into a great leader. I've pointed out <coughs> 
that many people might would question why we would discuss leadership on a Sunday morning. Isn't that something reserved for first Thursdays when we have leadership training? Ordinarily, possibly it would be. However, the context that I am using these verses in, I'm pointing out a fundamental truth that many people overlook. And that is that every single one of us are leading someone, whether we realize it or not. You're either leading family, you're leading friends, you're leading a brother or sister, you're leading a husband, a wife, children, grandchildren, you're leading a ministry, you're leading something somewhere. You have influence, and that's the definition of a leader, is a leader has influence. It may not be a big circle that you have influence in, but you're leading somebody. You see, one of the fallacies about leadership is that I'm not really a leader unless I'm the president and I've got a title. No, you don't have to be the president to be a leader. In fact, you can be a president and not be a leader just like you can be a leader and not be a president. Amen. Title doesn't automatically make you a leader. It does not. You have to develop over your life leadership skills. You are born with some things, but leadership ability is something you're not born with that is developed over the course of your life. And whereas you may have certain skills that are natural, innate, that you were just equipped with from the day that God made you, leadership skills are something you've got to seek out. And if you don't do this, then you never rise to the full potential that you could have been uh, successful in climbing to because you didn't pay the price to develop that within you. And I see that all the time in ministry, for example. I see people that are anointed. They can speak and everybody be on their feet. And yet leadership is sorely lacking in their life. And after they get everybody revved up, nobody knows what to do. And after a while, you can only rev people up so many times. And motivation without direction equals frustration. Did you know that? You don't just need to be able to motivate people. You need to know how to lead them. And one of the things that you have to have is a clear vision because you can't motivate anybody without vision. And so whether it's your family, your friends, your coworkers, you should have a vision for your life, your family, your friends. And I want to say this. You were never meant to be created are never created and meant to be ordinary. You weren't. Look at your neighbor and say, you're never meant to be ordinary. Would you do that? With over 7 billion people on the face of this planet, God is so gifted. God is so extraordinary in his ability that he's never run out of blueprints yet. Never run out of drawings yet. When he creates a new human being, every one of them are different. With over 7 billion on the face of this planet right now, nobody has the same fingerprints. Nobody has the same retinal print. Nobody has the same voice print. Just like there are no two snowflakes that are just alike, there are no two human beings that are just alike. The word, the world is, is waiting for you, and the word teaches us that God created you to come into this world to fill a purpose. The kingdom of God needs you. And I want to say something. You were created and meant to turn heads. When you walk by, somebody ought to say, wow. Amen. I'm serious. Not turn heads the wrong way like, oh, my. You, know? you were meant to turn heads in a positive way. You were meant to make a difference with your life. 
Amen. You're not like the two guys that went deer hunting. Can I tell you another joke? <laughs> Thibodeau and Boudreaux went deer hunting with a bunch of their friends. <laughs> Amen. Okay, if you're visiting with us, I'm part Cajun, so I can tell Cajun jokes. Okay, Thibodeau and Boudreaux go out into the woods, and later that afternoon, Boudreaux walks into the camp carrying a huge buck on his shoulders. And one of the guys asks, where Thibodeau is? And Boudreaux tells him, he's back there in the woods a couple of miles. I think he done had a heart attack or something. And his buddy is shocked and says, you mean you carried that buck back here to this camp and left poor Thibodeau lying out there in the woods? And Boudreaux says, yeah, man. He says, shy, it was a tough choice to make, but I figured nobody going to steal Thibodeau. Nobody won't see him, but they might take my buck. I'm got to have priorities here. You need to know the devil wants to steal your life. You need to know the devil wants to steal your destiny. His entire game is centered around one fact. He is terrified that someday you're going to wake up and discover who you were really meant to be in God. He lives in mortal terror that you're going to figure it out someday. And I want you to understand that Nehemiah was able to take people because he had been through this process himself and bring them from where they were to where they needed to be to be great for God. He was a leader. And that's your calling with your family. It's your calling in your business. Your calling in your ministry. It's your calling in your neighborhood. We are the salt of the earth. We are causative agents of change. We make things salty or have taste, or flavor. This particular passage in Nehemiah points something out. Nehemiah, and this is the leadership principle I want to speak from today, Nehemiah taught and inspired those he led to pay the price for success. Success will cost you something. To fulfill your vision and your dream is going to cost you. I want you to know it up front. There is no easy way to get to where you were supposed to go. And I want to tell you further that anyone who tries to inform you that there isn't supposed to be opposition and disappointment along the way and that you ought to be taking the easy way out is doing you a disservice. Amen. Because they're going to keep you from being successful. Psalms 34 and 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Do you hear that? How many come? Many afflictions. And who do they happen to? All right. So you're walking through some rough place, say, hallelujah, I must be righteous, amen. Don't feel real righteous, but according to God, you are the righteousness of God, amen. And you will face opposition. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. That's where you're tapping into that supernatural dimension of that heavenly high priest right there. You are able to draw from resources others cannot draw from. Now, in this story, as you well know, Nehemiah and the people of, of God are attempting to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and ultimately the house of God. The city where God lives is being restored. The enemy, seeing that they are beginning to succeed, has now upped the pressure. 
He's upped the intensity of his attack and increased the heat, as it were, on Nehemiah and the people of God. One observation that you need to, to, to realize in all of this right up front that is made clear in the book of Nehemiah is there's a reason the enemy starts increasing the pressure. When the enemy starts dialing up the intensity, most of us become discouraged. We ought to be doing the very opposite. When the enemy dials up the pressure, it means you are getting close to your breakthrough and he's scared. Hallelujah. He ups the heat because he's worried that you're about to succeed. Watch it unfold. Nehemiah 4, verse 12 through 14. So it was, when the Jews who dwelt near them came, near who? Sanballat, Tobiah, and Gershom. Remember, I told you with names like that, you know they're bad dudes right away, right? Those that dwelt near them, I'm talking about the Jews who dwelt near them, came that they told us 10 times from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked in a rose and said to the nobles and to the leaders and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Look at your neighbor and say, tell fear to go home. Would you do that? And remember the Lord, I preached from this a couple of weeks ago, great and awesome, and now this, fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. He made them realize they had a personal stake in what was going to happen. And that if they didn't come together as a team, if they became discouraged and ran, all of them were going to lose in a way that was significant and in a way they didn't want to lose in. Now, I want you to notice who it was that brought him the report, not just once, but 10 times. It was the Jewish people near Sanballat, Tobiah, and others, Gershom, the ones living near the enemy who came and told Nehemiah and his people there was no place for you to hide. Amen. No matter where you go, the enemy is going to get you. That's what fellow Jewish people, covenant people of God were telling them. Now, I, I, just, I just got a problem with that. I, I, I mean, the folk that ought to be encouraging them are instead pointing out all the problems here. Am I, am I helping anybody right now? And not only did they tell them uh, about all the problem and keep telling them, no matter where you go, they're going to find you. I mean, how does that sound? Thank you very much. That's all the encouragement I needed. You know, I've already got a bad report from the doctor. Now you tell me about Aunt Susie and Uncle Bill and your cousin and, and the folk down the street had the same thing and they all died with what I got, you know? You're really helping me out. Just to, If you don't mind, I'd just as soon you go home until I get over this. Notice who it was. It was the Jewish people, fellow covenant citizens of the family of God that were discouraging them. Amen. I want you to know they didn't just do it once, they did it 10 times. I can almost see Nehemiah saying, enough already, I heard you the first time. That's enough. Have you ever met anybody like that in the kingdom of God? That no matter how bad it is right now, they can make it sound a lot worse by the time they get through trying to encourage you. Amen. Job's comforters. 
pointing out the obvious, maximizing the problem instead of maximizing God. Oh, somebody in the building say hallelujah right now. Amen. Turning the attention from the problem, or rather from God to the problem. It was these fellow covenant people. I, I, I just want to tell you something. Have you learned you just can't take advice from anybody? You, you don't need to listen to everybody out there. Because some folk, by the time you get through talking to them, you'll be worse off than you were before you started. You don't, uh, can I dare say it? Do you mind if I say it? Don't take your advice from people that are living too close to Sanballat and Tobiah. Amen. Have you ever heard of that old movie, Sleeping with the Enemy? Sometimes we need to remember which side we're on. Oh, I hear what I'm talking about right now. And the last thing we need with all the negative information we get all on the news now, you know, nothing positive sells. So it's got to be negative. I mean, no matter how good it is, they can find a negative spin to put on it. You know what I'm talking about? Amen. And they can make it look worse than it really is and focus because negatives are what sell. You know why that's true? I'll just point this out. That there are two motivating factors that cause people to do what they do. One is the likelihood of a benefit to gain. The other is the fear of a loss to avoid. Those are the two reasons behind everything everybody that you know, including yourself, does. The decisions you make are run through that matrix. At a subconscious level, sometimes even a conscious level, you ask, what's it going to cost me if I don't do it, or what will I gain if I do do this? Do you know that people work twice as hard to keep from losing something than they will to gain something? Did you? That's a psychological fact. That's a reality. They'll work twice as hard to keep from losing what they've got than they will to get something new. And so the news media is spun in such a way that they constantly talk about negatives knowing your antenna is up and you're going to go zzzz. And bad stories are what sell. We hear enough of that. Can I just say this to the family of God? Let's stop carrying negative stuff to one another. We don't need it. Amen. You know, like I said, we already got a bad report from a doctor, already heard about the economy. And if you do this, people will talk you right out of a miracle. Oh, I'm preaching right now. I really am. Amen. The last thing we need to do, need is for our own brothers and sisters to come, people in the faith to tell us about how bad things are. No, we need a, a hand up, an encouragement. Some people feel like their spiritual gift is finding fault. You couple that with a gift of suspicion and they really, really think they're on track. Oh, I'm, I'm really pre preaching, Pastor Hurd, amen. I, I, I think I will, amen. We should not allow them to discourage us, but neither should we ever discourage them. What am I saying? You must pay the price, first of all, for faith. You're going to have to pay the price for faith. 
knowing that the human psyche is set up in such a way that we're attuned to the negatives, you're going to have to pay the price to turn your face toward God and continue to believe him. Amen. Listen to what Jude said in verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary. Oh, really? I'm not just writing this because I think I need a little filler material in my letter. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Amen. Whoa. Jude found it necessary to write to the saints to contend for the faith, fight for the faith. Tell somebody, fight for your faith. Would you do that? Why? Because if you fight for your faith, your faith will someday fight for you. Amen. You see, in this world, when we think we're so intelligent, and we do live in a time and place where man has advanced more intellectually than he ever has in his past history on this planet. We have almost become arrogant in what we believe is our superior knowledge. And we actually act like we know more than God. You need to understand what I'm saying, that human logic and reasoning, listen, human logic and reasoning are nearly always an enemy to faith. You say, I thought we were supposed to reason this out. Baby, there's some things you can't reason out in the kingdom of God. Your mind is not big enough to be able to grasp it because heaven has an understanding that mankind does not have of life and this universe and things that matter in the spirit dimension. In fact, one time, Jesus' disciples, listen to this, began to use human logic. And Jesus rebuked them, Mark 8, 15 through 17. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Another occasion, he also included in that the leaven of the Sadducees. And they reason, uh-oh, here we go. They reason within themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread that he's telling us this. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Whoa, heavy duty stuff. To begin with, the three leavens, leaven of Herod, leaven of the Sadducees, leaven of the Pharisees, is briefly this. The Pharisees put their faith in their compliance, outward compliance to the law. The leaven of Herod, Herod killed Anybody that was a rival or threat to his throne, including all of the babies in Bethlehem, boys two years of age and under, because that's where Jesus was from. The leaven of Herod was something, a doctrine that killed its children. How many churches have destroyed their own children? Oh, I'm preaching right now. How many churches have destroyed their members by teaching that we can, through legalism, have a relationship with God? Leaven of the Sadducees was different. They literally taught that there was no supernatural dimension. They didn't believe in angels, resurrection. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in prayer. None of that. How many churches exist in our world right now? And one of the reasons Christianity is fighting in America to be able to maintain its faith is because we have all these so-called believers that no longer believe God is supernatural. Amen. You must contend for the faith. 
Don't ever swallow the leaven of legalism. Don't ever swallow a doctrine that ends up destroying your children. Amen. Don't ever swallow a doctrine where there is no supernatural. You've got to leave room for the supernatural. And do you know why people develop these three leavens? It's because they're looking for rational explanations. I'm sorry. In our arrogance, we think we are rational enough to be able to know about an infinite God. Oh, I'm preaching right now. I'm sorry. Don't mean to upset anybody. But you need to realize that you can't rationalize everything in your Bible. You can't. Naaman dipping in a muddy Jordan River was not supposed to make him clean. He, could, he was right when he said, are there not rivers in Damascus that are cleaner than this muddy Jordan River? How can I go down and dip in muddy Jordan and come up clean? That's the logic of heaven. Sorry. Might not be the logic of man, but it is the logic of Almighty God. Why anoint somebody with oil? That's the logic of heaven. Man may not understand it. And that's why a lot of churches have stopped praying for the sick. But I still believe that when you pray the prayer of faith, anointing with oil, that God heals the sick. I do feel my Holy Spirit working right now. Why reason ye is what Jesus said. Amen. Celebrating communion. You try to figure that one out. How you can drink wine and eat bread and that become the body and the blood of Jesus and transport you back to Calvary. There's no way you can logically understand that. How in an economy that is taint can you give your tithe and offering and still be blessed? Human logic doesn't understand it, but the wisdom of the kingdom runs counter to the wisdom of this world. Amen. The wisdom of heaven is often diametrically opposed to that of men. We say, don't get mad, get even. The wisdom of heaven says, forgive, because you're the one that's going to get hurt if you hold grudges. The wisdom of men says, blessed are the rich. The wisdom of God said, blessed are the poor. Why? Because if you don't have your priorities right and you get a little money, you might not realize that you need the greatest treasure of all, which is God Almighty. <laughs> Nothing wrong with having money, but just realize that when you're hungry and all stuff is not filling you up, it puts you in a position to hear from God. Now, if you can maintain that hunger for God and have everything else, that's what Jesus really wants for you. Amen. Be poor in spirit is what he's saying. Oh, hallelujah to the Lamb of God. Oh, blessed be the name. I do feel the Holy Spirit moving here right now. Somebody just stop and give God some praise today. Each of these things that I've mentioned are a key to the supernatural dimension. Each of them, the anointing with oil, tithing, all of that communion, these are all keys to your breakthrough. But you stop and look at it, and I can tell you right now, it's not going to work logically. Logically, there's no way that you can figure it out. It just simply is not going to happen. But in the kingdom of God, mathematics are diametrically opposed to earthly mathematics. 
In this world, you better look at your enemy before you launch into a fight. The kingdom of heaven, one can put to flight a thousand, two, ten thousand, three, a hundred thousand, four, a million, because if God is for you, who can be against you? Amen. God plus one is a majority. Oh, hallelujah to the Lamb. That's why in the wisdom of this world it makes no sense for a widow lady in the middle of a three-year famine in, some, in Samaria to give her last oil and meal for a cake for the prophet. CNN would have done an expose. 60 Minutes would have been there. Diane Sawyer would have shown up. Amen. But because she did not allow the wisdom of this world to affect what she did, she didn't reason her way through it. She obeyed God. She tapped into a supernatural dimension where she was sustained for the next three years by God Almighty. The question is who can better take care of your stuff, you or God? If you want his dimension, of resources available, you've got to be willing to realize that human logic is no match for God's. Oh, bless his name, amen. You must not only pay the price in your faith, you must pay the price in perseverance. You gotta keep on keeping on. Oh, I'm gonna tell you there are times you feel like stopping. There are times you feel like quitting. There are times you feel like, oh, what's the use anyway? Anybody just get tired of all of that? Sure you do. But you know what you do? You get up in the morning, put your socks and shoes on, and march out the door and keep going on anyhow. Because if you endure to the end, oh, hallelujah, God's going to show up in your life. Success will come. And Nehemiah taught his disciples, taught his team, his followers, pay the price for success. Don't take the easy way out. Some of these, these folk are trying to tell you, water the message down. A Christianity without a cross is not a Christianity at all. A church that doesn't teach self-denial is not helping you. They teach self-denial in sports in high school for heaven's sake. Are we going to get so out of touch with reality that in our churches we forget that if you're going to follow Christ, you need to pick up your cross and follow him? Amen. You say, but that cost me something. That's the point. Because if you can carry your cross, you can wear a crown. And Amen. Success will come and God will meet you and God will see you through. Amen. Turn to somebody and say, keep on keeping on. Would you do it? Even when you don't feel like it, keep on pushing on. Move forward. Don't stop. Don't let anybody talk you into not moving forward. Amen. Embrace you, you know, and sit with self-pity while you wallow there in misery. You're going to be sitting there for a long time. I can tell you something about self-pity. It is more addictive than cocaine. Amen. There are more people hooked on self-pity than there are on crack. It will mess up your life. It will get you focused on yourself rather than God. 
Oh, so pay the price to fight the fight of faith. Number two, pay the price to persevere. Your family is standing behind you. That's what Nehemiah said. Don't fight for yourself only. Fight for your wives, your children, your sons, your daughters, your brothers, your sisters, your cousins, the church you're a member of. Fight for your house. Are you hearing what I'm trying to say today? I've got a word for somebody. If a man doesn't stand up and pay the price, he's not the only one that doesn't realize the benefit. Those behind him will never realize the benefit. But if you pay the price, your kids are going to take off and start from where you leave off and they're going to be at an L level that they never would have come to without you. Amen. I'm concluding. Amen. Not only pay the price and fight the fight of faith, because there is a fight, there is a price, there's a cost to success in anything you do, but also pay the price in perseverance. Stay the course. Tell somebody, stay the course. Don't abandon what you're doing. And number three, develop the skills necessary to get to the next level. Do what you have to do to get to the next level. If that's going back to school online, you do it. Amen. Because one of the biggest deceptions in this world is we think life is going to come tap us on the shoulder and say, boy, do I have a promotion in store for you. Uh-uh. You know what doing the same thing you've always done is going to produce? The same thing you've always had. If you're happy where you are, stay there. But most people are not, and they want to move to the next level. Amen. They don't want to come to the end of their life and just be a fraction of what they could have been. And you need to develop new skills. It was Albert Einstein who said this, that doing the same thing that you have always done and expecting a different result is another definition of insanity. Amen. Pay the price. Do what you need to do. And realize that whenever you are developing new skills and new giftings, that you're not the only one that's going to benefit. Those will too. Your family, your kids, your sons, your daughters, your wife, your children, your brother, your sister, your church. When you get elevated, you take others with you. Amen. You change the future, not just for yourself, but for others as well. That's important to me. There's a story that is told of a pianist who was a great pianist. And the pianist went to sleep one night and was awakened. In a, actually, in a dream, he, he dreamed he woke up. And in the dream, he could hear music coming from his drawing room where he had a piano that he would play and he could hear a song and the the playing was was phenomenal all the intonations and the nuances and and everything was was perfect and he listened to that and was amazed and what is more the song that was being played the melody had a quality that sounded familiar it was one of those songs like I know it but I don't know it if you understand what I mean 
The man walked into the drawing room and there at the piano, he saw someone sitting and the, the man's back that was at the piano was facing the man that was having the dream. And so the man in the dream walks over to the one that is the stranger in his home playing the piano. And when he walks up, the man at the piano turns and looks up at him and to the man's shock and amazement, he's staring at himself. And he's stunned and he stammers, who, who, who are you and what is this song you're playing? And the man smiles because you see, though this man was a great pianist, it came naturally to him. And he never, never needed to ever really develop his gift. He was one of those rare individuals that was born a savant. He could play music beautifully, didn't need to study, and therefore he never became everything he could be. The man looked it up, up at him and said, in response to his question, who are you and what song is this? The man smiled and said, I am the man you could have been. And this is the song or melody you could have written. Don't live your life and come to the end dreaming of what could have been. Look back over your life and say, wow, what a ride. I finished my course. Do what Paul did. Seize life. Make the most of it. Somebody in the building shout hallelujah. As I conclude, I'm enjoying watching Christian Tabernacle grow. I've loved this. Watching it through the years from that first Sunday morning when we had about 25 people and now, now or 75 people rather, sorry. And they started with less than that, less than 25 on Dewey Street. But now when I came to be here, senior pastor, that first Sunday morning, around 75 people. And now we have seven weekend services. Five on Sunday, one on Saturday night, one on Friday night. Look, I love seeing what God is doing here. Have there been some challenges along the way? You better know it. Will there be any tomorrow? Get ready, they're coming, amen. But you know what I'm gonna tell you when we face a new challenge? Fight for your faith, amen. You know what I'm gonna tell you? Stand in the gap because somebody's coming behind you that is going to be blessed because you paid the price. Oh, somebody give the Lord some praise right now. Hallelujah to the Lamb. And I conclude by pointing out the obvious, that if you don't pay the price to succeed, you pay the price for mediocrity. There's always a price to be paid one way or another. You either pay the price to make it and be the best you can be, or like the man at the piano, you have to confront what you could have been and go through the rest of your life thinking, if only I had it to do over. Don't live your life paying the price of mediocrity and dreaming about what could have been yours, what was within your grasp, because you could have tapped into supernatural resources and moved God. Don't dream about the family that could have been, where your children could be, where your ministry could be, where you could be. Don't dream about where CT could be. Take us there. Take your family there. Take yourself there. 
where you don't spend the rest of your life wishing you had. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew 16 and 25, for whosoever or whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does that mean in a nutshell? It's once again the counterintuitive wisdom of heaven that is speaking to us that is against the wisdom of this world that we have embraced. We say that if you want to save your life, you better, you better watch it. You better hold on to what you got. Jesus said if you want to save your life, you better lose it. And if you lose your life, you will save it. Lose your life for a cause bigger than you are.